oceans. Really, really like that song. Amazing oceans. This week has been a, a good week. Uh, I know last Sunday they started a study on uh, cults and other religions, and Corwin was facilitating that, and I understand they had a great group there. Going to meet here again at 4 o'clock, right, Corwin? 4 o'clock this afternoon, so I encourage you, uh, if you're part of that, to be sure and be there. Uh, Thursday night, we had our men's group meeting, uh, Stepping Up, and uh, that went very well. We had a good group of guys here and uh, sharing together. I've had a few of them come and say, wow, that was good. I really appreciated what I got out of that. So uh, I, I'm so thankful. And uh, so very special things going on. Then we have our other activities this week. Uh, one of the big ones is this afternoon at 340. Um, for those of you who do not know what we're having at 340, the uh, 49ers are playing uh, yeah, see, all of a sudden the lights all went on with a few people. And I know that'll be a very uh, serious time for some of you. But today we are here to study the Word of God and uh, study what the Word of God is all about. And let me just say that the uh, Bible's very dear to me. I really, uh, it, it is so special. You know, I want to read a passage to you. It's not the passage we're going to be reading this morning. The study this morning will be a little bit more academic because we're looking at a lot of the external proofs for why we can believe the Bible. Uh, we want to know that our scripture is reliable, <clears throat> that we can put our faith and our trust in it. But Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's right in the middle of the Bible, and uh, it's all about the Bible. That's, that's what it's about. It's about... What God has given to us, and I just want to start with verse 97. It says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for my testimonies are, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the old people, more than the aged is how it puts it. Because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey in my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. 105, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. I accept the free will offerings from, oh, accept the free will offerings from my mouth and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in your hand, yet I do not forget your law. Oh, the wicked may have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I've inclined my heart to perform your statutes for even to the end, forever. Let's pray, Father, shall we? Father, we just pray that you would open our heart today to understand what you have to teach us in terms of the basics of the Bible. So good to go back periodically and just get a handle on the basics. Last week, talking about the existence of God, your existence, Father. Today, talking about the word of God, the word that you have given to us, that we might know you, that we may have a relationship with you, that we might grow in that relationship, a standard for life, Father. And so thank you for the Bible. Father, might we be encouraged this morning, each and every one of us, just to stop and think that we can communicate with you through prayer, but you communicate with us through your word, through the power and the leading of the Spirit. And Father, might we be in tune with what you desire for us. Thank you for this study this morning. Open our hearts and our eyes to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I was thinking about the Bible, and, and I have it. I, I mentioned it a moment ago that I love this little book. It is, uh, this was not so 
large. I have some bigger ones. I have some New Testaments. Uh, I have Gospels of John. Uh, some Bibles are leather-bound. Some uh, are hardback. Some are paperback. Some have this nice thin pages that I have trouble turning sometimes, and others have uh, more standard paper. Uh, those things are all there. Uh, you can get your Bible on your on your cell phone. You can get it on a tablet. You can get it in your computer. You can get it on the laptop. I have some um, Bible apps and programs on my computer and my laptop and, and even on my phone uh, that I can use. But you know something? I, I really love to be able to just pick this up and feel it. And I have one at home that's hardback, and, and I can write in it, and I can underline with it, and I keep a pencil handy, and I keep a a ruler, a six-inch ruler handy so I can underline, and uh, it's just so nice. I just, the feel of it is special to me. And so when I think of the Bible, it is special. It teaches us how to live and teaches us about who God is. Without the Bible, we would be lost in so many ways, and so it is good to have the Bible. So we want to talk about the fact, is it reliable this week? We talked last week about the idea of, is God real? And if he's real, how do we know who he is and, and, and how do we know what he wants to teach us? We're told that 89% of Americans, by a poll, believe in a God. may not be the same God that we would think of in Scripture, but they believe in a God. They believe there's a God who created, although there are only 40% that truly believe in creation. It's kind of interesting. But the probability of there being a God is so amazing to me. I, I have trouble understanding why there is anyone who would not believe that God exists, whether it's the God of the Bible or some other God that they make up or they have heard about. The probabilities are so great. I, I looked at one. Uh, you know, you just think of the, the, the idea of, of first cause, that, that things didn't just spring into existence by themselves. There had to be that eternal being that brought it about. And, and then the complexity of the world in which we live, the complexity of humanity, of humans, is to think that you just give it enough time, put a little gas, whatever, hydrogen or whatever, into a bottle and leave it for a few billion years and you got a man. I have problems with that. I was reading about the DNA code that exists in our cells, the human cell. And I... I, I I'm not a scientist, so I don't have all the background, but one person said, think of how many 12-point letters fit on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. You can see those on there. That's 12 points. And uh, you look at that, and it says, now imagine a stack of papers 30 stories high. That's how much information is stored in the DNA of one human cell. It's amazing. Carl Sagan made this statement. He said, information content of a simple cell is equal to about 100 million pages of an encyclopedia Britannica. Maybe some of you don't know what an encyclopedia Britannica is. There were a lot of guys that used to come and try and sell them at our door, but uh, now they're kind of outdated. But the code must be written correctly and then The cell must be able to read it, the, the, the parts of the cell, the compartments, the, the organelles. They have to be able to read it, follow its instruction to metabolize its food, carry out the myriad enzyme reactions, and especially be able to reproduce. And that kind of information doesn't just come into existence by chance through evolution. And yet the first cell had to have that, that DNA to function. There has to be a greater being. There has to be a God. Uh, I believe the evidence necessitates intelligent design and an intelligent designer. And uh, without a God, it just didn't happen. We wouldn't be here. Creation tells us some things about God. It tells us his strength, his power, his creativity, his artistic abilities, his, uh, oh, a lot of things you can just see as you look at the creation. But to really get an understanding of who God is, 
we need more than that. And so God provided a way that we can know about him so that we can know about his program, what he has done, what he is doing, what he desires, how we are to have a relationship with him, salvation. It tells us how we are to grow in that relationship. It tells us about our future identity, where we will spend eternity. All of those things are found in the Bible. God gave it to us because of the necessity for us to have this. But a lot of people today, I hear them saying, oh, the Bible's outdated, it's an old book, it really isn't relevant, it doesn't meet the needs that I have. And usually I think that's an individual that hasn't looked very much at the Bible. They really haven't studied it. So this morning we want to talk about the reliability of Scripture. We're going to talk about the Bible. If there are so many different religions, many of them have their own books, which one's right? Which one do we agree with? Which one do we accept as, as relevant? And so what I want to do is I want to look at the Bible today, and I want to ask you this question. Is it reliable? Is it reliable? Can we trust it? And a lot of what we get won't be coming from the Bible because you can't just go back to the Bible and say, is it reliable? But you need to go outside of that. And so we're going to go outside of that a little bit this morning. But I want to start with one verse. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's a, Bible, it's a verse that... Uh, Probably many of you could quote 2 Timothy 3, and we're going to be looking at 15, verses 15 through 16, just very briefly as we get started this morning, because I believe it makes a statement about the Bible that's very important. This is what the Bible says about itself, and so we want to get that. What does the Bible state concerning the Bible? Let me just read these three verses, beginning with verse 15, it says, and that from childhood, and he's writing to Timothy. And he says, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to this later, but I'm going to tell you something. You couldn't be saved without the Bible because you wouldn't know how to have salvation. You may say, well, I, I didn't have the Bible when I became a Christian. No, but somebody that told you about how to be saved did. And so it all goes back there. This scripture tells us how to have salvation. That's what Paul says here. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for instruction. In what? Well, just about everything. Man, teaches me about God, teaches me where I came from, how I came into existence, teaches me how about how to have a good family life, how to get along in business. It teaches me... How to have integrity. Man, the Bible gives us instruction in all of these kinds of things. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. When I get offline, off when I'm not living as I should, man, the Bible brings me back. It's for correction. It's getting me back online for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God, we can say that, the person of God may be adequate. That is, equipped for every good work. If you really don't know the Bible, you're probably not equipped. You're not ready for the life that we have to live. Do you know it says in, in Ephesians that God has prepared good works that we should walk in them? It talks about being saved by faith, through, by grace, through faith. But then he says, hey, there's good works here too. And God prepared those for us. Well, as we look at this verse, there's one word that is so important, and it's found in verse 16. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired comes from a Greek word, theopanoustos. Uh, you don't have to worry about that, but it's a compound word. And the first part, theos, has to do with God. And pineo has to do with breathe. And so it simply means the result of the breath of God. Scripture is the result of the breath of God. It's what God breathed out. And if we look up in verse 15, it talks about the fact that they are sacred scriptures, and it's talking about probably the Old Testament that uh, Timothy learned. He learned them at the feet of his mother and grandmother. But back here in 2 Peter, in the third, third, verse of, or third chapter of 2 Peter, in the 14th through the 16th verses, uh, Peter was talking about the writings of Paul, and he says, 
Therefore, beloved, since we, you look at, for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. What's he saying? Paul's writings are scripture. He says they are authoritative, as also in all his letters speaking uh, in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. I think I'm having trouble with that already. Uh, But the idea is that it doesn't matter whether we're looking at the Old Testament or, as Peter says in Paul's writings, the New Testament, it's all breathed out by God. It's given to us by God. I've heard people say, I don't like Paul. I don't, I don't think Paul's writings are very good. I don't read Paul's writing. He, he's a sexist. He, he's legalistic. He keeps me from doing the things I like. I don't like Paul. I just like to read the Gospels. Well, I don't like to read the Old Testament. It isn't for me. Well, a lot of it's written to the Israelite people. I agree with that. Everything in the Word is inspired. It's just not that everything is written to me specifically. I understand that as well. But everything in the Bible is inspired. One book, not more than the other. One word, not more than the other. They're all given to us by God, and we're going to see in a little while that they're given by the Holy Spirit. But uh, the Bible comes from the word uh, biblion in the Greek, and it simply means a book. This is my book. This is the book that God gave me. And uh, I really love this book. I, I... I remember when I came out of seminary, I was almost afraid to preach from it because uh, it was so special. And what if I messed it up? And, you know, I just have to trust God that he he keeps us moving in the right, right direction. But I want to give you some external evidence first. I think that's important because a lot of people will say, well, you can tell me what the Bible says, but if there isn't anything else that demonstrates that it's real and reliable, I can't believe that. So I want to give you some external evidence uh, first of all, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament primarily in Greek, Koine Greek. Uh, a lot of people say, well, what does that mean, Koine Greek? And also Aramaic. But Koine was, uh, there was classical Greek, most of it older than the Bible, but there was Koine. It was a street language. You know, if you go into different neighborhoods and stuff, you hear different language. It's kind of a street language that they have. Um, and that's what Koine was. It was the language of that day. It was the trade language of that day. Uh, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. That always amazes me. I, it, it isn't a matter. I, I think of people that write today. I think of some individuals that put out 20, 30, 40, 50 books, more than that. How long does it take them? Not too long took 1,500 years to put the Bible together. It wasn't that these guys all sit down in a little room in the back and played a few cards and then sat down and say, what should we write? They actually weren't together at all, most of them. The Old Testament was from about 1,400 B.C. to extended out to about 400 B.C., the first Books possibly by Moses. Uh, Job is thought to be the oldest book, but we don't know exactly when it was written. But Moses wrote the Pentateuch, those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, He wrote those, and he probably started somewhere around 1400 B.C. or a little earlier. It was right in that, that area. And then Malachi was finished with the last book about, and he was a prophet, about, 400, and then there was this period of silence. There was no writing. Um, in the Catholic Bible, you'll find the Apocrypha, which was written at that time. But Jesus didn't accept those as, as verifiable scripture, and the early church didn't. The, the Catholic Church brought them in, in about the 10th century. And so uh, we wouldn't look at those as evangelical scholars today as probably being biblical scripture. But Uh, They are there. But there was that time of silence, I believe. And then about 50, 45, 50 A.D. to about 95 A.D., 
the, uh, the New Testament was written. James was probably the first one somewhere around 45, 50 A.D. Uh, after Christ. Now, do you remember when Christ was crucified? It was about 30, somewhere in there. And so we're looking about 15, 20 years later. And what happened is that they would have teachers going out, and they would be teaching about Jesus and the message of Jesus. Peter and James and John and different ones were teaching. James died earlier. He was the first one to be martyred, the brother of John. And then Jesus' brother stepped in, James, and he became a believer, and he was kind of the head of the church of Jerusalem. But as time went on, they began to realize people were dying. Some of those who had been there during the time of Christ were dying, and they needed to get things down. They needed to have them written, and so there were those that sat down and wrote the history of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them had some type of apostolic authority, had a relationship with one of the apostles, or they were an apostle. Uh, Matthew was an apostle, John was an apostle, and so we begin to see these books as they were written, and then Paul began to write to the various churches he had been to, and James wrote the first book. Uh, Let me just say something. When you're studying the Bible, always go back and look at the context of the book you're studying. Very easy to get caught up with just, what does this word say, what does this verse say? What was the context? Uh, People didn't like James' book. Uh, Martin Luther didn't like James' book. He didn't think it should be part of the Bible because it was too much into works. Uh, He said faith without works is dead. There's going to be an evidence to your faith, an evidence to your Christianity. Where if you go back to Paul in Galatians, he says it was for freedom that we were created. It was for freedom that we were set free in in James or in, in Galatians 5.1. And, and, and they seemed to be at opposite poles. But one of them was because James was writing to Jewish Christians who now that they were Christians found out they weren't under the law anymore and they were just using their freedoms for license. They were doing all kinds of things. James says, hey, we've got to come back here and find out what's true. Paul, on the other hand, found that they were Judaizers coming into Galatia and he had to come back and say, hey, you're free. Don't go under the law again. So you look at the context. They're not contradictory to each other. They're the same. So we have 66 books. They were written over 1,400 years, 39 Old Testament books, 27 in the New Testament, 40 different authors from all kinds of walks. (laughs) David David was a, a shepherd, and he was a king. Wow, that's amazing. What, what psalm really shows him being a shepherd? Anybody know the psalm that would really demonstrate the, the shepherding skills of David? 23rd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything else. That's what he said. He's all I want. And so we see that coming in in his writings, even though he was directed by the Holy Spirit. Moses, wow, what an amazing individual. Moses, the first 40 years of his life, was raised in the courts of Pharaoh. He had the very best education he could get. Then for 40 years, because of the fact he killed an Egyptian guard, he ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. Now God came to him and said, Moses, I got a job for you to do. I want you to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so he let him out, and what did he do? He wrote five books, or four books, five books, Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Last part of Deuteronomy probably was written by somebody else because God took Moses to be with him. But think about it. He wrote those books. How did he have the ability to do that? Educated in the courts of Pharaoh. Extremely well-educated trained to be a leader. He had all of the skills. But they got out in the wilderness. Wow, what do we do out here? Well, Moses knew. He knew where the water holes were. He knew the direction they needed to take. He knew how to live in the wilderness because he'd done it for 40 years. Moses was so fully equipped by God to fulfill that role. And we would look back and we'd say, wow, why did he have to go out in the wilderness? Why did he have to go through that? Because that was God's plan. Solomon, oh, he was an exceedingly wise individual. We have the, the books of the Proverbs, but he's kind of a worldly king. 
Daniel was a prophet educated in the courts of a heathen king, and he wrote about international history and prophecy, and he, he lived on an international scale in Babylon. Amos, I like, I like Amos. He's, he's, a, he's a herdsman, so he had some flocks, but I just like the sound of it. He was a fig farmer. You know, he, he farmed figs. He picked figs, and that's what it says. Matthew, a tax collector. Luke, a doctor. John and Peter were fishermen. Paul was educated as a Pharisee. He was educated under Gamaliel, probably the best teacher in Jerusalem at that time. And so you see, each one was prepared ahead of time for the job that God had for them to do. It's amazing as we look at how God put it all together. And we see the picture of what God does and what we have in the scriptures. Jesus didn't write any books. He's our leader. Why didn't he write? Jesus wasn't here to write books. His life was the book that we see and others wrote about him. He was raised as a carpenter, but he was the eternal son of God. And you know, it's amazing to me how you can have 40 authors over 1,500 years from all kinds of different backgrounds, some writing in the city, some writing in the desert, some writing in all kinds of different places, all kinds of different circumstances, and yet there is total unity within the Bible. One theme throughout, God was restoring his kingdom. God was restoring the people who had been lost. In Romans chapter 8, I, I, I like the idea of the restoration of the creation. I, we don't think about it very much. We think about the restoration of people. But in Romans chapter 8, in the 18th to the 22nd verses, listen to what it says about the creation. For I consider the suffering of this present time, sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery of cor to corruption and into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and it suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. God is not only going to restore humanity, he's going to restore his creation. And we see that picture from beginning to end, all the way from... When God told Adam and Eve that there would be one who would crush the head of Satan, the serpent would bruise the heel of that one. And so the first book was written about 3,500 years from now, and the last one about 2,000 years from today. And you know what? It's totally relevant. How many of you have any of your old high school texts or your old college texts? Anybody here? Yeah, I've got some in an old box. You know, when I go back and look at those, I find they're totally out of date. They're not relevant. But this is. This is relevant to every aspect of your life. And it's such an amazing thing to realize that. The older you are, the less relevant your textbooks are. I will let you know that. The answer to that is that really there's only one author, isn't it? If you have your Bibles, turn back to Second, Second Peter. Second Peter, the 20, well, we're going to go to the 19th verse. First chapter, Second Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 19, it says, So we have a prophetic word made more sure to which we do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic word is the Bible, of course. It says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's the only way you can have it is that there was 
a guiding spirit, the Holy Spirit that was guiding each and every one of these. He didn't take away their personality. He didn't take away uh, their writing styles. But everything he gave them was true according to God's will. And so we have one author all the way through. When you read the Bible, read it literally for what it says. Don't try and figure out all kinds of codes or all kinds of things going on in the Bible. There are those individuals that have tried to do that, and they've failed time and time again. All you have to do is take the Bible and read it literally. What does it say to you? Who is it writing to? What is the purpose? So important that we do that. It's, we, we pick up other books. We take uh, our computers, and you sit and you say, what was the author saying? And that's what we've got to get, and that's what we do with the Bible. We determine what God says. Let me give you a little more information externally. Archaeological evidence. Dr. Nelson Gluck, uh, probably the foremost archaeologist of the 20th century, said with over 25,000 sites now examined, archaeological sites, not one of them has ever conflicted or conflicted with the biblical record. It's true. Historically, it's true. Manuscript evidence in the Bible. We look at it there, and it says they have found either portions or all of 5,366 portions of the New Testament that were created by 250 years after the writing of the New Testament. Another person said it's 5,686. The earliest papyri that we have, the, the Ryland papyri is from one of John's books and it dates to somewhere around 114 to 130 A.D. Do you know when John wrote? Somewhere between 85 and 95. That's about 40 years maybe. Maybe not even that. That's close. When you look at historical evidence, that's amazing to have something that is is that close to the original writing? We don't have the original writings. God didn't give us the original writings from each one of these individuals. Do you know why? I'll give you one reason. It's because we had those original writings. A number of years ago, I was in, I was in Japan. And we'd gone up to National Forest, and there was a shrine there. And there were three gold Buddhas and people were going by, lined up, basically worshiping those Buddhas. They had them there. They could see them. They couldn't touch them. They weren't allowed to do that. But there they were. They were huge. You know what would happen if we had the actual writings of Paul and the writings of the Gospels? People would be worshiping them. They wouldn't worship the message so much as they would worship the the uh, material that they were written on and everything else. And yet, here is a historical book that we have so much evidence. The transmission that men use to copy what we have, and they can take all of those manuscripts and, and those evidences and, and those little pieces and those particles and put them together, and they compare, and they find out that what we have, the scribes were so diligent in copying that we can be assured that the Bible we have today is the scripture God's given us. It's his transmission. Let me, let me give you some illustrations of some other historical books just really quick. Uh, they were verified. How many of you ever heard of the Iliad by Homer? Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, good. Do you know when it was written? About 800 B.C. The earliest copy is about 400 B.C. There was 400 years between when it was written and the earliest copy. Now they have... 643 copies in those er, of those early writings sometime after uh, that 400-year period, but that's nothing compared to the 5,686 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts we have in the Bible. Plato, how many have heard of Plato? Yeah. Plato wrote about 400 B.C., before Christ. The nearest manuscript that they have is... 980, that's about 1,300 years between the writing and the manuscript. Do you know how many manuscripts they have, portions? Seven. Seven. Man, nobody questions Plato. I've never heard anybody question the, 
fact of whether Plato wrote those things or not. Caesar wrote around 100 to 44 BC. The nearest copy is 900 AD, about a thousand year gap. They only have 10 copies. The New Testament, the nearest fragment, 114 to 130 AD. There's about a 40, 50 year gap in there. But just a short time, really. Full books of the New Testament they had by 200 A.D. Almost all of the New Testament by 250 A.D. And all of the New Testament by 325. It was canonized. Canonized means a standard. It means a measurement. It was canonized in 397. But let me tell you something. In 333, uh, an emperor by the name of Diocletian wanted to destroy the Bible. He was getting them and burning them. And you know what he was doing along with the Bibles? He was probably burning the Christians that had them. It was so important that they understood what was really scripture and what wasn't that long before it was canonized, they had already determined in the churches what were truly the books of the Bible, what was verifiable, what was acceptable. Man, if you're going to burn for something, if you're going to dice for something, you want to know it's worth it. And so here they were, and they were going back, and they were studying to make sure that these were truly the books, and they had, they had standards that they followed. The internal essence, boy, number one, when we look at the Bible, it is the standard for becoming a Christian. You want to be saved, you, you've got to do it. I mentioned it earlier by the Bible. Certainly, 2 Timothy 3.15 said that you can only be saved by the Bible, but in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The Bible Bible changes lives. There are things that the Bible does that no other book will ever do. And some of you will tell me that God's changed your lives and made a difference in terms of who you are. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living, it's active. I, I've never heard about that with any other book. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Wow. You study the Bible and it opens up our hearts before the Lord. We begin to understand what's right and wrong and what is okay and what isn't okay. It's a standard of morality. It's a standard of the law. Our laws are based on the Ten Commandments, basically. And it goes back there to Exodus chapter 20, and we see that the Bible gives us that proof of prophecy. This is, this is something that has always stood out to me. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it today, but in, you can write these down. First Kings chapter 13, verse 2. There was a prophecy that was given against Jeroboam, and 300 years later it was fulfilled. Second Kings chapter 2 or 22, verse 1 and 2, and uh, i, I got to look these up. I just can't go by without looking at them. Uh, go back to 1 Kings 13. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along right now, uh, certainly feel comfortable doing that. If you have your cell phone or your tablet, you may get there faster. Uh, but in 1 Kings chapter 13, Jeroboam was uh, first king of the northern tribes. Uh, the nation split. Two southern tribes went to the south. Rehoboam was their king. He was the son of Solomon. But because of Solomon's sin and then Rehoboam's actions, the top ten were torn away from him. He no longer had control, but Jeroboam did. But Jeroboam didn't want to go down to Jerusalem to, wor to worship. <laughs> That's where they were supposed to worship, but he says, I don't want to go there. So he began to set up his own places of worship. And in chapter 13, it says, Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel. And that's where he was, up there at Bethel, by the word of the Lord. And while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, he cried against the altar, this man, he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord. And he said, O oh, altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones will be born, burned on you. And that sounds like kind of a strange prophecy. But if you go back to uh, 2 Kings, 
Second Kings chapter 22, and uh, we find the King Josiah taking his place in the court of Israel. Second Kings 22, uh, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 34 or 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidiah, and he was the daughter of Adiah. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether I pronounce those right or not. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now you go over to chapter 23, beginning in the 13th verse and going through the 16th verse. Then we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. The high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination, and the Sidonians, and for the Chemish, and the abomination of Moab, and we're looking here at these gods that were wrong, and Milcom, the abomination of the sons of the Ammon, of Ammon, the king defiled. In other words, Josiah says, I'm going to destroy these things that they've been worshiping here. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars, he cut down the ashram, that, that idol. He filled their places with human bones. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place, which Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, had made Israel sin, he had made. Even that altar, the one that he said would be broken in two, the, the one, the prophet who came, even that altar, the high place he broke down, and then he demolished its stones and ground them to dust and burned the Asherah, and now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there. These were the old priests, the, the uh, heathen priests. He saw the graves that were there on the mountain, and he sent and he took the bones from the graves, and he burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. This was 300 years later. The very name and the very incident was foretold. And we look in the Bible, and we see that a number of times. Micah 5.2 talks about the fact that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You go back to Matthew chapter 2 and you see it worked out exactly the way he said it would. It's amazing. 700 years later, and that prophecy was fulfilled. Cyrus, um, it was said that he would return the people 120 years before they went back. They had been carried to Babylon by the Babylonians. When the Persians took over, King Cyrus became king. 120 years it was prophesied his name that he would send those people back to rebuild Jerusalem. Amazing things. I just want to read to you really rapidly a list of the prophecies. We're not going to go look up all of them. But I want to get you to get the idea. You remember that a week or so ago we said that if even eight of those prophecies about Jesus Christ were fulfilled... Uh, it'd be, uh, well, this individual says 100, the likelihood of that happen is 1 in 130 trillion times. Amazing. I can't fathom those kinds of numbers. They're beyond me. But listen to what it says. He would be born a virgin. Virgin. Isaiah 7:14 and Matthew 1:23. it was fulfilled. He would live in Nazareth of Galilee. It told us that in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. In Matthew 2, 22 and 23 and 4, 15, it was fulfilled. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13 was the prophecy. Matthew 27, 7 to 10 is the fulfillment. He would die a humiliating death. Psalms 22 fulfilled uh, in Isaiah 53. He would be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53, 7 said that, and Matthew 27, 12 through 14 fulfilled it. He would be mocked. Psalms 22, 7 says that. Matthew 27, 31, it talks about his hands being pierced. Psalms 22, 16 fulfilled in Luke 23, 33, and I have a number of others there. What I want you to understand this morning is that the Bible is an amazing, amazing book. I, I was looking it up. I had looked it up earlier in the week, and I didn't have it down in my materials. But when we look at the Bible, it is the most translated book in the world. It was 
the first on uh, printing press, the Gutenberg Press. Bible was printed there. Um, one of the first books ever translated from another language, the Septuagint, was 200 B.C., and it was a translation of, of the Old Testament into Greek, from the Hebrew into Greek. And they'd gotten 70 Jewish scholars to do this, and that's 72, actually. And that's why they call it Septuagint. It means 70. 1380, Wycliffe translated the Bible. Tyndale in 1536. But today there are, and I want you to get this because I want you to understand how much the Bible influences our entire world. There are 7,099 living languages today. 7,000 living languages. There are 300 or 3,312 all or parts of the Bible. It's amazing how many. It, it, it's in different languages. In the New Testament, it's 1,521 languages. Total Bible, 670 languages. Parts of the Bible, 1,121 languages. And, and that brings it up to that 3312. And, and wow, there. Wycliffe Bible translators have said, I thought it was by 2025, probably not then quite, but they want to have the Bible or part of the Bible in every known language in the world today. They are rapidly going about that. Five most popular Bibles. There's actually uh, 900 English translations today. Isn't that amazing? But let me give you the five most popular. How many of you, who would you think, which is the most popular translation of the Bible today that people buy? NIV, exactly. NIV, New International Version. Which is the second most popular? I hear a lot of mumbling. Nope. 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 New Living Translation. Hey, what are you all doing? I happen to like the New Living Translation. I read that with my other Bibles and stuff. It is, it is a great source. If I really encourage people, if they're not going to get in the Bible and some of the other translations, get into it in the NLT. I want people in the Bible. And we get a lot of times into such an idea, well, that Bible is not acceptable. And I think we need to let the Lord work through his word. Uh, third, third most uh, popular. King James, King James right on. <laughs> K, King, King Jimmy got in there. Very good, very good. Woo! I bet nobody gets this next one. What's number four? Hmm? Anybody here heard of the Christian Standard Bible? What did it used to be? What was it called before it became Christian Standard? What? Holman. Holman. Which is the fifth? This is the last one I have. Which is the fifth most popular? Ryrie is uh, it, it, based on his notes, but he uses several different translations of the Bible. Uh, I, like, I like Ryrie's notes, so you probably see people around here with Ryrie study Bibles. But uh, you can have that in the NIV or the NAS or any number of translations. What's, what's the fifth translation? Anybody know? You're whispering. What what Bible do I use up there? Which one? NASB didn't even make the top five. Really a bummer. ESV, English Standard Bible Version. So we look at that. What I want you to get today, though, is that when I look at Scripture, I look at what the Bible says about the Bible. We didn't go into a lot of scriptures. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about it. Uh, How shall a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might sin against thee. Uh, I did read uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, 
Psalms has a lot about the Word of God. If you go back to Psalms 19, beautiful passage on the Word of God. But what I wanted you to get today is that the Bible, according to external evidence, is a reliable source for us to believe in. And when we look at the fact that the Bible is a reliable source based on external evidence as well as internal evidence, we can then go back and say, what does it say about who God is? And now I can begin to understand better who God is. I can understand how I can be saved because the Bible teaches me that. I can understand how I can live according to the will of God. Sanctification becomes a reality because the Holy Spirit works in my life and I take the Bible and I study it and I understand it and it's applied to my life and it makes a difference. The Bible is not to be ignored. We have a tendency to think that we can sin. And we can't. We need to be true to what God calls us to. And that means we need to be true to the Word of God and take it seriously. Next week, I'm going to talk about our problem. You look around the world today, we got problems, folks. We got problems in Washington, <laughs> we got problems in Brentwood, we have problems in the across the Delta, and we probably have problems at times in our own homes. And so, we're going to talk about man's problem. Next week, we're going to talk about how it came into existence and how it affects us. It's called sin. Just a little word. We've kind of gotten to where, oh, sin, we ignore it. I'll tell you what, we don't want to do that. So next week will be a good one. Be sure to be here. We're looking at the basics of the Bible and, and probably looking at some things from a different standpoint than I normally do, like this morning was a little more academic. Uh, but I hope you think in terms of how this applies to you and applies to your life. So important that we see how important the Bible is and we'd be willing to take some time to get to know it. The best friend you've got. Uh, of course, other than the Heavenly Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But let's pray, shall we? Father, I pray that you would take the truths that we have looked at today, so many of them just academic facts and figures, but I pray that you would apply them in our lives that we would stop to think about how amazing this book is. You know, I hear people, and they do, they say it's an old book, and it's out of date, and it was just written by a bunch of guys that didn't know what they were talking about. And it's so much more than that. As old as it is, it is still relevant to our lives today. It's relevant to our eternal destiny. It's relevant to our marriages. It's irrelevant to our families relevant to our business, relevant to whether we're people of integrity or not, whether we honor and glorify you or not. And so, Father, I pray that we'd take the truths that we found and uh, the, 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 just the priorities, the things that are there in the Scripture, and we would apply them to our lives that you might be glorified in us and we might experience the freedoms that we have in you, Father, the joy that can be ours in you. Pray for each individual here that you might lift them up and encourage them as they go out this morning to think about the Bible and how special it is and not just go home and stick it on a shelf or stack it on a table, but pick it up and begin to study it and read it and understand what it says because it's through the Bible, Father, that we get to know you by your spirit. Thank you, Father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.